0: I'm Matt. if you don't know me, married to Joe, who was singing a moment ago. I hope you're all well on this. I don't know who this belongs to, so (laughs) here we go. People, leave junk up here. I'm going to throw it away. The passage Aaron just read from was... 1 Peter 2 verses 21 to 25, that's what I'm going to be speaking from this morning. If you want to find it in your Bibles, if you have one, you can. If you don't, don't worry. The words will appear on the screen behind me as we go through the message. I don't know if you saw in the news the week before last, but uh, there was a 25-year-old French man who, who hijacked a car. And he killed the passenger, attacked the driver, stole the car. He drove off and uh, shot at some policemen. And he ended up in a supermarket in a town called, uh, I think it's called Trebez in the south of France. And he tried to hold some people hostage. Lots of people escaped. Uh, but he grabbed hold of a, of a cashier and was planning to use her as a human shield. And then a French policeman walked in put down his gun, and, and offered to to swap places with the cashier and said, I'll, I'll stand in her place. I'll be the, the substitute. I'll take her place instead and, and swap places. And he was uh, later stabbed and shot. And he, he died in hospital a few hours later. And sadly, we, we hear about these terrorist attacks so frequently that we don't often hear the human stories behind them and so often they just kind of wash over our heads these days because they're so frequent um, that we don't often even realize that they're taking place. But this man, this policeman, Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltrame, he really stands out. And uh, at his funeral this week, President Macron described him as a man of exceptional courage. He's a a hero, is how he described him. And this man was he was actually, he was a Catholic and the priest who rushed to the hospital to pray for him before he died uh, on his deathbed, he said I think that only his Christian faith animated by love could have demanded of him this superhuman sacrifice. The policeman's mother also spoke of his committed Catholic faith. And I, I don't know what this policeman was, was thinking when he, when he offered himself in exchange, what was going through his, his head. He, he would have known that two people had already been shot and killed in the, in the supermarket. He would have seen that. So he would have known that this man was dangerous and most likely his life was at, was at risk. He was aware he was probably going to die. But I wonder if these words that we've just read from 1 Peter were even running through his head so that you might follow in his steps And the message I want to preach this morning, it's not a call for us to make superhuman acts of courage and bravery, but instead for us to recognize that a supreme act of sacrifice has already taken place for us, for us. And that's right at the heart of the Easter story, right at the heart of the Christian faith is that a substitute has stood in in our place already for us. And the story, the actions of Arnaud Bertramé should fill us with grief and sadness, but they also point us, and I'm sure this is what he would have wanted, they point us to gaze at a mightier, much better sacrifice. Let me pray. Jesus we, we thank you that we hear this story that's uh, profoundly moving and emotional. And we, we see the, the sacrifice of one man for another. And we, we applaud his courage and bravery knowing that he was only able to do that by you, Jesus, at work in him. but we can this morning we can declare the wonderful victory that at the cross it wasn't just one man taking the place of one person but you you died for the many that you died for us for those of us who would call upon your name you died for us you stood in our place you were our substitute our human shield and this morning on this Easter day this resurrection day we want to thank you for that and thank you that you rose again that you defeated death and I pray as we look at these words from Peter this morning as we study this passage I pray that you'd speak to us speak profoundly and deeply into our hearts draw us back to you Jesus we pray Amen, amen. In, in 1 Peter, what we find is, we find, uh, I guess what would, you could call a kind of an eyewitness account. Because Peter, he knew Jesus better than, than most people. Peter was one of his Jesus disciples. More than that, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. That's how the Bible describes him. He, he spent three years of his life following Jesus everywhere eating meals with him, going on trips with him, praying with him. I was reading the other day in in John 21, after Jesus has been resurrected, Jesus comes to the shore, Peter's out with his friends fishing, and uh, Jesus calls to them. And Peter's so excited that it says he'd taken his, his top off to help him fish, so he put his clothes back on. I don't know if he was supposed to do that, but it was almost so like he was so excited that he put his clothes back on and then he just jumps in the sea to swim to the shore. Everyone else in the boat kind of sails back to shore. And Peter's so excited to see his best friend that he swims towards him. And they, they knew each other in that kind of intimate way. Peter knew Jesus incredibly well. So these words that Peter shares with us where he describes what happened at the cross describes his kind of own version of the Easter story. We can take them with an added weight because Peter knew this this man, he knew this God. And what he says first of all is that of what took place on Easter, he tells us that no one deserved it less. He says that, that Jesus committed no sin you see, it wasn't that Peter said that Jesus was a man of courage, or that he was a hero. He said he never sinned. He never sinned, which is a remarkable thing to say about somebody because those that know me most intimately, in fact, probably anybody that meets me at any point will be able to claim, yeah, okay, Matt screws up from time to time. You know, <laughs> I'm sure that's true for you. In fact, I know it's true for you that everybody that really knows you knows at least some of your weaknesses, some of the areas that you fail in. No one is perfect. You, could, you couldn't say about anybody that they'd never sinned, but yet Peter tells us this about Jesus, his closest friend. He knew him that well, but yet he could say he never sinned. And then he says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What he means is that both in act, in what he did, he never sinned, but also in what he spoke, there was no deceit. There was no deceit. And again, we can't claim that about our, ourselves. No one can tell the same story of us. We've all gossiped from time to time. We've all said things that we regret. Those words, those things we've said that we wish we could take back. It's like, but it's too late. They're out of our mouth. They're gone. We can, we all know what that's like. But yet, for Jesus, there was no deceit found in his found in his mouth. No one deserved it less, and and no one no one suffered more. It says when he was reviled he did not revile in return and you get this in the passage this kind of change of scenes Peter's been telling us about Jesus life how he lived that he lived this perfect life he never sinned and then he draws us to Calvary to the cross begins to explain to what to us what happened says he was reviled now to be reviled is that's to receive accusation scorn, hatred, verbal abuse. And Jesus had that. He had the crowd that on Palm Sunday, the week before, had welcomed him into the city. And a week later, they're shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Had the Jewish authorities saying, he's not the king of the Jews. They said, we we worship the emperor. We don't, who's this guy? They abandoned him. The soldiers at the cross Mocking him, verbally abusing him, throwing taunts and abuse at him. And again, no one, no one deserved to retaliate more than to be able to say, Don't you know who I am? I'm the Messiah, I'm your Savior, don't you know who I am? And yet he doesn't, he doesn't do that. I don't know if you've ever been wrongly accused of something. But your first, your gut instinct is immediately to clear your name, right? Well, you can't say that about me. I remember once I was, I was walking home one afternoon, and I was walking up to my front door, and this police car pulls up next to me. These two policemen jump out, and they say, Sir, can you, can you stay where you are? Someone down the street has just been mugged, and you match the description of the person who did it. And they said to me, where do you live? And I had my key in my hand. I was like, well, you know, right kind of here. Uh, and then immediately, you know, I wanted to clear my name because I hope you figured out in this story that I didn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't me that mugged the person. This isn't a confession. But, but I, you know, I wanted to say, hold on. it wasn't you know I'm not to blame but in those moments the words just couldn't come out of my mouth I wasn't trying to be like Jesus and not reviling in return I just I was petrified just holding my key. I live I live here officer I'm sorry and then fortunately they had a a call came on on their car radio and they sped off and I never saw them again and I quickly went inside and locked the door and hid I didn't do that no I was very brave But when you're, when you're wrongly accused, it's just human instincts to try and clear your name, to verbally retaliate, but Jesus doesn't do that. It says when he suffered, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. And again, we could, this is maybe the part of the story that we perhaps would wanna skip over we don't want to talk about Jesus suffering. It's a nice Sunday morning. Why don't we want to talk about that? You think because surely the only thing that matters is that Jesus that Jesus died. But actually the fact that Jesus was even crucified, that, that matters. That's that's important. Because he suffered in lots of different ways. He he suffered physically. A Roman execution is about the worst form of physical suffering that mankind has ever thought of its designed to prolong the pain for as long as possible, to cause maximum agony and discomfort. It's a horrible way to die. It's the worst form of torture. Their suffering wasn't only physical, it would have been would have been a mental suffering with everyone abusing him. The whole idea of a crucifixion is it's designed to humiliate those who are on the cross, to degrade them, to make them somehow less than human, to dehumanize them. That's why they, they did it that particular way. Because crucifixion was it was a slave's death. It's how they, they got rid of. The lowest of the lows, the nobodies. It wasn't the sort of execution they used for a king or someone with noble status. It's how they, they, they got rid of the nobodies to really put them on display and have a good laugh at them as they suffered. I't know, you know I don't know if it's still the case, but the, the Amsterdam gemeente, the local government here. They used to employ somebody who was part of their job to organise funerals for those who died with no one to bury them, as in they didn't have, they couldn't get in contact with anybody who was a friend or a family member to organise their funeral. So there was someone in the Gemente who would who would make that all happen for them, uh, and they spent their that was their job. Their life was finding the the nobodies. The lowest of the lows, the people that society had forgotten. You know, the, the bodies that get pulled out of the canals, and the job was to organize the burials for those people. And in a way, Jesus suffered a death designed for people like that, for the nobodies. You know, we don't, we don't, the Romans executed thousands and thousands of people, crucified them. We don't know their stories. Most of them have forgotten. Most of them, even at the time, they wouldn't have known who they were. Just common thieves, slaves, people they wanted to get rid of, murderers. And there's, there's Jesus. There's, there's our Savior, our God, suffering the lowest of deaths. And yet, through all of this, it says that he did not threaten... <laughs> Again, he could, have, he could have responded, this is God. He could have come down from the cross and fixed everything, but he didn't threaten. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, in all the horror of this suffering, he remains steadfastly obedient to the will of his father. I don't know how that works, but he did. He remained steadfastly obedient. And the question that I think we need to answer this morning is, is why? why? Why such a suffering? What does, this, what does this mean for us? Why this slave's death, this degradation? Firstly, it was to bear... Our sins—that's what the passage says—and Peter's quoting from, and he's referencing as he does all the way through this passage from Isaiah 53, where it says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. It goes on to say, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See the the iniquity, that means the sin of us was laid on on him. That means that it's a kind of a biblical way of saying that those those who sin must pay the price. They must pay the, the penalty. We know that. If you do something wrong, you should pay the penalty. And yet it says that Jesus bore the penalty for not for what he'd done, because he'd lived this sinless life, but for what, for what we'd done. He bore our sins. It doesn't mean that Jesus just kind of sympathizes with us or identifies with our pain and suffering or is kind of there because he's being persecuted on our behalf. No, he's, he's there to take The penalty he's there as our human shield Jesus is held responsible someone needs to be held responsible to account for the things we've done but now it's Jesus who's there not not us he bore our sins because you know each of us we've We've done things, and we've said things, thought things that we know are wrong. And you might think, well, I've not, who who are you to say that I sinned against God? What is this? That you know, even to your own standards, you've not hit the mark. You've even let yourself down, your own expectations. You've let people around you down. You've hurt people. They alone hurt and let down and sinned against God. And we can't claim to be sinless in any way. And yet it says in 2 Corinthians that for our sake, he made, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. The second reason of why such a suffering is to take our curse. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the, on the tree. And in the, in the Bible, to, to die on a tree was to be cursed. Peter's talking about what it says in Deuteronomy 21. It says a man if has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all the night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God." Jesus became a curse for us. He was cursed for us. I don't know if you've read the book or seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where four children, I've got to remember their names now, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, what's everyone called? Susan. They go through this wardrobe into this magical world of Narnia and they discover there that it's, it's cold and it's snowy. It's, it's always winter and never Christmas, which feels a bit like March in Amsterdam, right? <laughs> it's kind of... But it's, it's like that, it's always winter, never Christmas, because there's, there's a curse on the land. And someone has to come and pay the penalty and take the curse upon themselves to release everybody else. So this lion, Aslan, comes. It says in the book, when a willing victim who'd committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's steed. The table would crack and there has this beautiful phrase that C.S. Lewis writes and death itself would start working backward. (laughs) The curse just works backward, it just disappears. And Jesus takes the curse upon himself so that we can now have summer in our lives. We can know the fullness of what it is to know Jesus. Our substitute takes our place. The third reason is because we need healing. It says, by his wounds, you have been, you've been healed. Because maybe you do find this whole language of sin just bizarre and a bit religious and a bit confusing. But the reality is we're all spiritually sick. Inside, there's a, there's a sickness that you can't cure by yourselves. And I think you probably know that. You know that sensation in your heart of something's just not quite right with the world, not quite right with you. And you spend your life trying to cure yourself, trying to pump into yourself all sorts of medication to make yourself feel better. I don't mean literal drugs, although that may be true, that is true for many people, but all sorts of things that we try and fill our lives with. Might be your your career, your work, family, relationships. There's all sorts of different things that we try to just make us feel a bit better. We're trying to cure ourselves. This sickness inside, we're trying to get rid of it. But, But you can't, not by yourself, It says that it's not by our efforts, by our achievements, by you just winning in your career, just having the best marriage that you're healed. That doesn't heal you. It says by his wounds you've been healed, by the work of Jesus that you're healed. Many hundred years ago, uh, I think he's a saint now called Theodore, is a great name. He said this is a new strange method of healing, that the doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healing. The doctor suffers the cost, but the sick receive the healing. Because you might think this story could sound a bit cruel, that there's innocent Jesus with an angry God smiting him, but we have to make sure we get our theology right that Jesus is God. This is God himself taking the punishment, bearing the cost, bearing our sin, so that we might go free. It's the doctor suffers the cost and we the sick receive the healing. Our fourth point is that Jesus suffered to renew our lives. Jesus comes as our substitute to stand in our place, to be our human shield, but for a reason. (laughs) Because not only does Jesus die, but on this resurrection day, we celebrate that Jesus lives, He's alive. He rose again, and he defeated death. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians who follow him, we know that that means that we've risen again with him, that we receive this new life, that he turns us into new creations now. We get to live life to its full. New life follows. He's renewed our lives now. Finally... Jesus suffers, it says, to restore our relationship. This passage closes by saying, for you were were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because you might not even feel sick, but all of us have strayed like sheep. We can spend our lives living with no particular direction. We're not really going anywhere. We think we are and then we get to where we thought we were going and realize it's not what we thought it was gonna be. So we head off in another direction. I'll go there instead. We follow that path and that lets us down to, we're straying like sheep in a field, wandering aimlessly from place to place. And yet we now have this shepherd who's come to guide us home. And all of us can know this father, this good shepherd who who loves you, who cares for you. The Bible uses this picture of a shepherd caring for his flock deliberately because it wants us to understand that we have a father who the same way a shepherd would tend and care for the sheep that he's in charge of, that we have a God who cares for us, who knows us, who loves us, who's looking out for us, who's looking after us. And Jesus suffered so that you could be forgiven, but also that you could know God. He could, comes to restore your relationship with Him, to restore what he'd always intended, that we could be friends with God, that we could know God, our Father, in the richest, most beautiful way. Let me pray. Why don't you just stand to your feet? You don't have to. You can stay seated if you prefer. Jesus, Jesus, We thank you that you suffered and died for us, this horrible, brutal death that we might have life. We thank you that it wasn't just one man dying for one, just one person substituting himself for one, That you, this sinless savior, Substitute yourself for us. You stood in our place. You took the punishment, the penalty that we deserved. carried our sin on your shoulders. You were this shield that we can hide behind now. And you're this savior that's risen. And we can walk in the good of this resurrection that we celebrate today we can say from the depths of our souls that Jesus is alive, we can rejoice in that and celebrate that and we can know that you forgive us and I just want to pray for anybody here that that isn't a believer in you or isn't sure, I pray Jesus that you would just speak into their hearts that they would know that you love them, that you're calling them to return to you from their wandering and their straying, that you've come to cure them of their sickness, to heal them of their wounds, to give them this perfect life. It's not actually the life that we've always wanted, it's something so much better than that. Jesus, and we want to be those that live our lives as those that say, we're going to follow you, that you're going to be our example, that we're going to live for you no matter what the cost, not because we have to, because we know your grace, but because we want to, because we love you, because you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus.